So uh, let's turn to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. We are uh, continuing in our Sharing Life series, and uh, we have reached the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is 40 verses long and has some fantastic advice in it the whole way through. Uh, But because of its length, I've decided I'm going to focus on two particular aspects of it. So I'm going to read from verses 1 to 7 and then from 25 to 35. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But... Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Moving to verse 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one whose by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So continuing in our Sharing Life series on Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. This was a young, 
newly formed church living in a culturally challenging context. The city of Corinth was a seaport on a significant trading route, and along with all the money-making opportunities, power struggles, it was infamous in its time for sexually immoral behavior. It's into this challenging context that communities of new believers formed in response to Paul's preaching and his mission there for a year and a half. People started to follow Christ, became Christians, and at baptism received a new identity and started a new lifestyle. At the very beginning of his letter, Paul reminds them of their identity as those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Then goes on to challenge them on the reports that their lifestyle was based more on the culture around them than on their new identity in Christ. In fact, in one report that he'd received, their behavior had even shocked the pagans in the city around them. So if you haven't had the opportunity to, do listen to the excellent talks we've had on chapters five and six over the last few weeks that, so you can hear the whole context of uh, what we're teaching at this moment. Why was Paul's challenge to the church in Corinth important? Well, through the arc of scripture, it's clear from creation to restoration that God's plan is to be in covenant relationship with his people to the extent that in the book of Revelation, part of the future, part of that future, the restored reality is that the church, we, are described as the bride of Christ. Through the Old Testament, Following creation, we see firstly humanity falling from that by choosing their own way. And then time and time again, that that God's people turn away from that relationship with God. This unfaithfulness is challenged by the Old Testament prophets using language of adultery. Thank goodness that we live in the New Testament times. The new covenant that is established in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, whom no matter what we've done, no matter how many times we've turned away from God and done our own thing, he calls us back and forgives us, shows us loving kindness and grace, washes us clean, sets us free to live lives from our identity in Christ. And that offer is for everyone. God gave his son for the whole world. So with that bigger story in mind, that's also why Paul challenges at the end of chapter six, the attitude and practice of the church in Corinth that when it comes to sex says, I have the right to do anything. The body doesn't matter and anything goes. At the start of this chapter, he challenges the other end of the spectrum. The group that considers that the body is evil. Who thinks that true spirituality means even if you are married, marital relations 
sex should be avoided. Complete abstinence. And that's the reason the question that the Corinthian church have asked Paul to reply to. So where this um, verse starts here, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's in quotes in your Bible. And that's the right translation. This was a question coming from the church in Corinth, driven by this abstinence party, we could call them, who was saying, to be truly spiritual, don't have sex at all, even if you're married. And this was countering, uh, this was at the complete other end of the spectrum from the Libertine party was saying, anything goes, doesn't matter, just do what you like. Those are the two groups that Paul is speaking to in this. And he's picking this up at the beginning of uh, chapter 7. He's really challenging this abstinence party. So it's not Paul saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay? He's probably been misquoted through the years. He's responding to a question from a bunch of people who are saying to be deeply spiritual, no sex within marriage at all. So I think it's probably quite a relief to the married people around us to know that Paul challenges that. In fact, he more than challenges that. In the next verses I read from chapter 7, he affirms sex within the marriage covenant. And more than that, makes a statement of equality and mutuality between husband and wife that is way ahead of its time. Kenneth Bailey in his excellent commentary, puts it like this. Equality between the wife and the husband in Christian marriage is here presented in unforgettable terms. Each partner can say to the other, I give gifts and I have rights and I have authority over your body. The granting of these gifts, rights and powers to each partner on an equal basis is truly amazing to discover in a first-century document. Now, there is uh, one encouragement to abstinence later on, as you picked up in verses 6 and 7, uh, where Paul says, actually, you may, husband and wife, want to stop having sex for a wee while in order to pray and to devote yourselves to prayer. How's that going? But don't go on for that too long in case you're tempted to look elsewhere for sexual satisfaction. Come back to your husband and wife again. There's so much more to say from this chapter about marriage and I would uh, really recommend both Kenneth Bailey's uh, uh, book about Paul in a contemporary culture, his commentary on 1 Corinthians, and also Anthony Thistleton's uh, pastoral um, and, uh, account of 1 Corinthians. There's so some very helpful things that unpacks these different elements of chapter 7. So there's a lot more to say from this chapter about marriage, but this morning I want to talk about something which is rarely mentioned in our society today or to my sadness in the church, and that is singleness. In this chapter, Paul makes some stunning, uh, remarkable, stop-you-in-your-tracks statements, recommending people in Corinth to stay single, 
even going as far as to say, now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Being single is good news. Being single is good news. I'm aware I'm saying something there that's very countercultural. And shockingly, it's very countercultural in the church, isn't it? If we're honest. This is what uh, Paul goes on to say in in verse 25. When he starts off there saying, now about virgins, that, that statement of virgins is it's gender neutral. So it actually is speaking to women and men at that point, that verse 25. It would be better translated as saying, um, now to those not yet married, in that, the beginning of that there. So just to clarify that. So now about those not yet married, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Paul goes on to make the same statements for women in that situation. But I want to repeat that, that line that could cause us a bit of a double take. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. We might hear the opposite if we rushed through that. We might hear the opposite. If you do not marry, you have not sinned, is what we might hear. But that's not what Paul says. He says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. You see, we might hear the opposite because the people, the pressure on people to be in a sexual relationship in the world or in a marriage in the church is so strong. The prevailing culture is so strong. But this is what Paul recommends to the people in the church. His reason is that the single person is free from distractions, able to give undivided devotion to the Lord in both body and spirit. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. More knowing grins from husbands and wives sitting around here. But how can this be at all possible? It's vital to realize that Paul is not talking of a single person living in isolation, caught up in a devotional whirlwind. Knowing grins from single people here as well now. No, Paul is speaking to a community made up of lots of different people in different circumstances. And within the single state, he's speaking to widows, those who's divorced, and those who are simply single. How is it possible to live in this wholehearted devotion to the Lord? Only as part of community. Only as being in community. And the church should be the best place to walk that out. But is it? Are we? Is being single valued, honoured? 
I think I've shared before that in a previous church, I was asked the question, I can't understand why you're not married. The remark was well-intentioned, but puts huge pressure on the person on the receiving end. Anthony Thistleton on this. Paul begins by affirming Christian freedom. Both marriage and the single state are equally honorable. This should not be taken for granted. Some Greco-Roman philosophers perceive marriage as a higher duty that befitted the full responsibilities of a stable citizen of that state. On the other hand, some of a more ascetic or self-styled cast of mind exalt as singleness or celibacy above the distractions of having to perform marital duties. In view of Paul's language about pressures in verse 26 and distractions in verse 32, it's important to note that Paul freely honors both states. And this morning, I want to honor both states. And I do honor both states. As we think about people being single, and we honor that, well, we follow Jesus, who, when he lived on earth, was single. As the eldest son in a Jewish family, there were huge expectations on him to marry and to have children. And yet, he lived a single life and was fulfilled and offered to people life in all its fullness. Paul was single. It's not clear whether he was widowed or divorced or or simply single, but it's clear from this passage that he delighted to be in that state, embodying the view that Christians can fully serve Christ as Lord in whatever situation they find themselves. And if we're honest, there's, there's pressures that we put on each other, single and married, with expectations of what the other state will mean. I remember uh, a few decades ago having a conversation with a colleague of mine uh, up north, and uh, he's happily married. I was, I was single at the time. I still am single, actually, so I was single. Um, not happily single, actually, at that point. I was not in a place of contentment, I would say, Now, I'm content with my circumstances, but at that point, I wasn't. And uh, we had a bit of a conversation about what we each thought the other had. So I said to him, well, you know, you're married. You have the opportunity for intimacy. And he said to me, and Anne, you're single, so you uh, you have the opportunity for freedom. And as we got into the conversation a bit more, we realized that we both wanted what the other one had. And we also were able to uh, unpack that he was able to say to me, well, do you really think I go home to my wife and we're immediately intimate all the time? No, we've got to put the meal on. I've got to put the kids to bed. We're, you know, there's things. To, and I'm like, oh, okay. So I've got this, you know, airy-fairy, rose-colored view of it all. And I was able to say to him, and, and do you think freedom is the freedom that I have? Do you think that means I can do anything? No, actually, there's a, there's a loneliness involved with how I have to live my life and 
I was able to unpack that for him. And by the end of the conversation, we'd blown a few myths. So do take the opportunity. I mean, I'm delighted that in our communities we have uh, a mix of married and single people. Do have opportunities to have conversations. Just blow some of the myths um, around what you think the other person has got. Because we're always wanting what somebody else has, aren't we? But our deepest satisfaction is coming back to God. Are our communities places where both single and married people can share both the joys and the challenges of what's involved? Or do we allow the isolation of the age to take over? You know, it's okay, they're married now. They don't need our friendship anymore. And we become isolated households and lonely people. Let's not be that, church. Let's reach out to each other in friendship as we walk together in that. The reality is that a gift of grace is required to live either a single or a married life. It needs sustained discipline, reflection. And those gifts of grace that God gives are received at the cross. It's hard to live out a single life. It's hard to live out a married life. But they are described here as gifts of grace in verse 7. Just turn to the person next to you and say to them, your current state is a gift of grace. Give them a poke in the ribs. So what we're called to is to live in ways that speak of the future promise, the foretaste of revelation, being a radical new community formed and based on the grace of God and truth. It's not a journey that we take on our own. We're part of community, being known in community. We respect that people coming here are in different situations. In fact, more than respect. We aim to follow Jesus' way of loving acceptance and we welcome everyone. We're all on journeys in our life. We're called to make that journey as part of a sustaining community. The principle we see in scripture and followed in the Church of England is that marriage is between a man and a woman. St. Barnabas aligns with that, as do I. Of course, I know that there are other Christians who have a different view. We believe that to believe in Jesus is to be a follower, it's to take up our cross, it's to enter new life. And the life he calls us to live includes being faithful in marriage and celibacy in singleness. It's the job of the church to lay out the ways of Jesus 
and what scripture says. It's not the job of the church to force or, or coerce people to follow Jesus in areas of life where they're not ready to. And the reality is for all of us who follow Jesus that there are, that there are areas of our life where we're not there yet. That's for all of us. We're part of a journey of change and that's why it's important to be part of a sustaining community. So what, what story, what personal story can I bring that uh, talks into this, where God has spoken into me? This I, I said um, earlier that currently, with being single, I'm at a place of contentment. It's not by choice that I'm single. I have to say, when you put a rev in front of your name, does seem to put people off wanting to get into a relationship. So it's not particularly by choice, but I have got to a place of contentment and living a fulfilled life. But it wasn't always like that. Uh, different stage of my life, but the, uh, the one I want to bring this morning was uh, that in my 30s, I had fully, fully bought into the lie that said I was an incomplete person if I didn't have a husband. And how did that play out? Well, I was desperate to find someone and I was just not satisfied. In fact, I was disappointed. And I was uh, part of a, a community at the time uh, which was both a sustaining community, but also a community that was up for a bit of, bit of challenge. And I would say, you know, I haven't met anyone yet. And they said, well, what are you doing about that, Anne? Are you just sitting there and just... Or what are you going to do? So uh, with great fear and trembling, I uh, got into a, uh, a Christian dating website. Really didn't want to do that. Really thought, why do I have to put myself out there? Had all of those sort of things going on. Um, but anyway, the friend who was uh, walking this through with me, who was um, a great friend, said, come on, I'll help you write your description. And when it got to the bit about which magazines do you read, she said, no, you can't put Golf Monthly, Anne. <laughs> it just is not going to help on that, anything like that. So, so, and I, you know, I met one or two people through that, one or two guys through that. I had her on a text call to me that if I needed to get out of the situation, I mean, you've seen it in comedies, haven't you? Get a text if I needed to get out of the situation, she would text and I could get all of that going on. Um, it was helpful because it actually meant that instead of just talking about it and getting upset, I was taking some practical action. I was being supported by a friend in that. But as you'll have noticed, that uh, didn't lead to marriage. So that was the practical action that was helpful in a community who were sustaining, but also challenging me to take steps forward. But I still had this lie going on in my head. I still had this desperation. What happened? What changed? Well, I went 
on, uh, with a, a different friend who also knew the situation, um, I went to a conference. And the conference was at the Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship. Some of you know that. It's quite a wild place. Great fun to hear the word of God and have the Holy Spirit ministered. And uh, we sat, uh, we had a long uh, layover in Paris Airport. And uh, we, ex- we chatted to each other about our hopes for the conference. And I said to my friend Liz, I said, oh, well, maybe I'll meet somebody there. And she said, I'll pray for that. You know, right, come on, let's, let's pray for that. Let's pray. Anyway, we arrived in uh, Toronto and our luggage was lost. Uh, so it meant that for the, first, uh, for the, three days of the com- first three days of the conference, I had to wear exactly the same clothes. And um, it got to the stage, people come up to me from the Toronto airport, Christian, and say, oh, I, I know you, don't I? And I'm thinking, no, I'm just wearing the same clothes as I wore yesterday. They thought I was part of the fellowship, but it was just that similarity thing. Anyway, um, so it was one of these conferences where the worship was um, on the screen. So the words were on the screen, but there was also a camera going round the people on the, the delegates worshipping. So you could see the words, but you could also see people. And I discovered that as I was worshipping God with my hands in the air, my eyes were open as I was trying to spot. (laughs) A possible tall golfer. (laughs) Who clearly also loved God because their hands were also in the air worshipping God. And uh, I was like, ooh, ooh. Liz, what do you think? So she was having a look too. Um, not exactly worshipping God, is it? Was there an idol that had possibly come in? Was I so bought into the line that there I was? So I said to Liz, after this session, I said, Liz, this is what's going on. I need to confess now, this is what's going on. And she said, fine. She said, you shut your eyes, I'll keep looking out for you. So (laughs) she's a really good friend. She's a really, really good friend. (laughs) Um, Then on one of the evenings, this... um, this speaker got, uh, called Jack Taylor got up, and he, he was in his um, early 70s, uh, really on fire preacher. And he started to talk about how, very sadly, his uh, wife had recently died. And he told us all about that. And then he said, uh, but I've uh, met another woman, and actually at the moment she's ill in hospital. So I would like the whole conference to pray for her. So he got us all standing up, and uh, he got her on the phone, and he said, right, right, honey, I've got the whole of the conference praying for you. And so we all kind of shouted out, hands, you know, it was kind of Mer- North America, well, it's Canadian, actually, isn't it? But anyway, lots of, it was loud, okay, it wasn't British, it was very loud as we shouted this, Lord, heal this woman, heal this woman. And then um, uh, Jack was on the phone, and he, he said to her, uh, oh, yeah, I just want to... Um, just uh, want to ask you a question, honey, and I'm just going to take you off the microphone. So he took the microphone off, and he had a conversation with her, and then he said, and then he put the microphone back on. He said, well, that's wonderful. Can I, can I share that with everybody here? And she said, yeah. She said, he, and he said, well, um, honey, what, what the conversation we just had is, I've just asked you to marry me, and what's your answer? And he put the phone to the microphone, and she said, Yes. And we all whooped and hollered. We were so excited for them. This is amazing. Of course, the Brits there were totally shocked that he proposed in front of everybody and, you know, because he got down on one knee and it was all, you know, it was all very... But we were like, it was, oh, it's amazing, amazing. Anyway, the next day I went into a talk by Carol Arnott, which was um, a great talk, which I'm sure you can still get online, about how we are the bride of Christ. And uh, that God doesn't want 
busy lovers, he wants, um, he wants intimate lovers. That's, so it was encouraging us into a loving relationship with God. And I sat there and um, thought, yep, great, yeah, fantastic. And then the prayer time started afterwards. And as I was prayed for, the Holy Spirit came, and it was one of those occasions where the Holy Spirit was moving in a lot of power, and the way that I responded in that was to go down on the floor, and the lying on the floor, and having a conversation with God. My conversation with God went along like this. I said, that was amazing about Jack Taylor last night. That was extraordinary to see that, Lord. I saw somebody propose to somebody, and they said yes. I have never in my life experienced that. I've never seen anybody propose. I've ne- and I was part of that. That was amazing. I've never heard anyone ask somebody else to marry them. And God said to me, yes, you have. And I said, God, you know my life. I've never heard anyone say to me, marry me. And he said, yes, you have. And I went, Lord, you know my life. Nobody has stood in front of me and said, marry me. And he said, I have. Will you marry me? And I said, yes. And in that moment, the desperation stopped. And the lie was broken. Whether you're single or you're married, you are complete in Christ. Whether your spouse lives up to your expectations or not, you are complete in Christ. Whether you are disappointed with loneliness because you're not yet married, you are complete in Christ. It is God who completely satisfies. It is God who completely satisfies. We have desires and appetites in all sorts of different ways. It is God who satisfies. I won't pretend to you that it's been massively easy since then, but you get the, the, what ended? The desperation. The lie was broken. I could live fully and freely in Jesus Christ. See, if you're following Jesus, the reality is we're all married to God. You, church, us, are the bride of Christ. This is really good news. What an extraordinary covenant partner, giving us security and significance. Don't base your understanding of the marriage covenant with God on what you see in your own marriage or in marriages around you, okay? That's just a, it's just a foretaste. There's a bigger covenant. That's God's covenant. 
you can come confidently to God. He will give you everything that you need. He will satisfy your inmost desires, and he may well do it in ways that completely surprise you, as he did with me in a conference in Canada wearing the same clothes for three days in a row. What an extraordinary covenant partner we have. So that's the first point. If you're following Christ, the reality is we're all married to God, we are the bride of Christ, and that is extraordinary good news. Are you dissatisfied? Second response point. Are you just, and yeah, so response time. You may need to step into that reality that you are the bride of Christ. And guys, you'll have to be the bride of Christ. Us women have to be the son of, you know, so women have to be sons, men have to be brides. We just have to get over that bit with the language, don't we? So for some of you, it's stepping into being that bride of Christ, that deep, deep covenant relationship that God has. For others, in terms of response, the question is, are you dissatisfied? Perhaps there's disappointment or desperation with your life. And it is in God that you find full satisfaction. Uh, I'm going to read uh, Psalm 63, verses 2 to 5. If that's you, I want you to uh, please receive this. Receive this. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. In your hands, I will lift, in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be sat, fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Whenever the Bible says steadfast love, it references Heseth, which is the covenant. So verse 2 and verse 5, sorry, verse 3 and verse 5, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. That's Psalm 63, verses 3 and 5. And finally, have there been occasions in your life when your desires have led you to do things that you're now ashamed of or continue to carry them around as guilt? or shame. Well, let's all put our hands up to that one, because we're all like that. We've all been unfaithful to the covenant God has made for us. So what do we do? We come to the cross. We ask for forgiveness, knowing that even as we come, that in Jesus we are already forgiven, and that he restores us to live in our new identity, with joy and with freedom.